This is Love Your Work. On this show, we help you make it as a creative entrepreneur, find your unique voice, find the right mindset to succeed, be the first to capitalize on new opportunities to make a living making your art. I'm David Cadavy. If you want to join us here on Love Your Work every Thursday, please hit subscribe on your podcast app. And to get your free creative productivity toolkit, sign up at academy.net slash tools. Austin Cleon woke up one day and he realized two things. One, the world seemed to be filled with more and more anger and distraction every day. And two, to make matters worse, consistently doing creative work was not getting any easier. Austin had already written three New York Times bestselling illustrated books, including Millions Have Already Learned to Steal Like an Artist, the title of his first book, and they'd learn to put their work out there with Show Your Work. And Austin wasn't sure how much more he had in him that inspired him to write his new book, Keep Going, 10 Ways to Stay Creative in Good Times and Bad. In this conversation, you're going to learn why making something for yourself is technically making something for someone else. Learn about the many different ways that focusing on your own creative expression can reach others. How can you be a valuable asset to the creators you admire. Austin shares a specific story that shows you why you have more to offer than you might think. What one thing can you do in the morning, or rather not do, to do your best work yet? Here is Austin Cleon. I'm talking to Austin Cleon and Austin in your new book, Keep Going. You open the book basically saying that, you know, it feels like the world is falling apart, yet creative work isn't really getting any easier. Um, how are those two ideas connected in your mind? Well, I think the timely aspect of it is that I, you know, we're in this kind of moment right now, particularly in our country where, you know, the bandwidth is getting used up uh, by the political moment. And so, and various other things. Um, but it feels like uh, most of our sort of temporal bandwidth or whatever you want to call it is being kind of gobbled up by this kind of the overall kind of hostile tone of the country right now. And then, so that's kind of the timely aspect of it. But then if you kind of like pull back and think about time in a more longer sense, you know, creative work is always difficult and it's always hard for the creative person to kind of both be connected to the world in a way that feeds the work and to disconnect from the world long enough to kind of be able to, you know, practice their craft and come up with good ideas and, and stuff like that. So I feel like... um what I wanted to do was write a book uh, simply about, you know, that addressed both of those at the same time that, that kind of showed people that like, look, it doesn't matter if it's good times or bad, really, that, um, you know, this kind of act of connection and disconnection is, is kind of a dance that you'll always have to do. And that creative work doesn't really ever necessarily get easier. <laughs> uh, and so that's kind of what I wanted to explore in the book, just how do you, you know, keep going uh, uh, and build rather than just a few projects, build an actual career out of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's interesting what you're saying about the bandwidth 
being used up. That I hadn't really thought about it that way before, but I can see how like it's connected in the way that it's this wonderful time to be a creator because you can get your work out there and people can see your work. But at the same time, those same mechanisms that are available can be kind of hijacked. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you nailed it. I mean, the very, it's kind of the double-edged sword thing where, you know, the very thing that allows you to connect with a potential audience is also the thing that can kind of, you know, scramble your brains and take all your time and, and completely addict you to the point that, you know, you can't actually get any work done. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that in, in some ways, this book is a little bit of a corrective um, to my sec- uh, the second book in the series, Show Your Work, which was very, was a little, you know, it was written in 2014, and it was a little bit more optimistic about social media <laughs> um, um, than this book is. And, uh, you know, but I think that whenever you're dealing with like a kind of mass media, um, and, and not really even a mass media, but a, but a kind of two-way media like the internet, I mean, there's always going to be that potential. You know, I, it's funny because I, I remember years and years ago, you know, like half a decade ago, I'd be talking to artists about, you know, getting online and they would say things like, well, I just don't, you know, I don't want to put my stuff online because I don't want to get sucked into that whole deal. And um, I used to just think, oh, this is so cute and funny. And now (laughs) it's like, actually, all those people were probably really wise to be hesitant. Uh Um, But I think we're just kind of in this moment where you know, the problem is, is that you really do sort of need to engage with some of this stuff in order to just simply get your work out there and be uh, kind of relevant. But then you also have to be able to battle it and keep it kind of tamped down in your own life so you can actually get your work done. Mm-hmm. Well, and it can be frustrating at times when you do see the bandwidth being taken up and you sometimes you can kind of see the way it's being done and you know that it's kind of a game. And I, I, mean, I don't know if this is, if it's like this for you or not, but, but it can be frustrating sometimes because you, you look at what's getting attention and you're thinking, you know, what do I, is that, do I have to stoop to that level? <laughs> well, this is always the, you know, I mean, I think it's the, it's always the attention and a, a problem for artists, particularly and all creative workers, you know, especially when you know you're trying to have any kind of taste or mm-hmm. <laughs> you know you're trying to have some sort of ethos or way of operating. I mean, um, the, the culture is such right now that it's really hard to feel like you know the dumbest, loud, loudest, and most shameless are the ones who get heard. You know, um, but I, I think there's this very, I think, you know, that, that could be true, uh, in terms of like just sheer numbers. But I also, I, you know, I also think that it's kind of a, a, a niche time in a sense in which, you know, it's so easy to, to reach like a niche audience now. And mm-hmm. I think there are like so many people who are hungry for kind of a different way of operating online. Um, 
uh, for and you know, in my own personal experience, one of the things I've noticed is I've gone back to uh, daily blogging and a weekly newsletter, and there seems to be something about those formats that people are starting to get more interested in them again. They're starting to kind of be interested in this more homegrown approach um, to you know sharing and and getting your stuff out there. So I feel like I feel like the personal website and and email newsletters in particular are going to make a come comeback here because everyone is just so fed up with not only the kind of tone and quality of social media, but the, you know, the the lack of privacy and the manipulation and 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 even if you don't care about those things. There's definitely the sense that your, you know, your feed's being messed with, whether it's like, you know, you want to see like a, a chronological timeline, you know, or something like that. Yeah, the, the algorithm is, is you know, it's like I've, I've suggested before, like, I want to see on Twitter people that you wouldn't think to follow yeah. or on Spotify, like the music that you probably wouldn't listen to or Netflix. Here's the series or the movie that you probably wouldn't have thought to watch. Well, and I think, uh, yeah, and I think like, you know, nothing beats, no algorithm beats a human. You know, I think that one of the reasons, like when I hear people write in about my newsletter, I, I, they like the randomness of it. You know, mm-hmm. they like the fact that <laughs> I'm the thing that kind of, I'm the only unity to the links. <laughs> yeah, I'm the I, one I, that that picked them. You know, I, I love that because I, there was a time I was writing uh, an email that was just kind of I was writing whatever I was interested in. It was just a bunch of random stuff, and somebody wrote back, and they're like, "Oh, like what do you think about what? How do you do this strategy, etc." I'm like, "This isn't a strategy. Um, you know, this is just me writing the thing that I thought was interesting." It is funny that people will will try to read some sort of. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, oh, you must have A-B tested that until you came up with this idea. No? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's so funny because I, I have the same experience. Like, uh, I think people are are so, you know, sort of jaded by, you know, they know that's how people usually operate now or or supposedly they do. And I think people sometimes are very skeptical that I actually like write my newsletter <laughs> and stuff like they think like maybe an assistant does it. But I, I mean, if you read the newsletter, there's no way an assistant does it because it's just not like sort of that tone isn't really, it's, it's definitely me, you know? And, and I, I do think that's why people actually read it. But I, I think that, you know, this is the interesting like tension of the times is that, as everything seems, you know, so out of control and like algorithm based and and whatever, like you, you know, you really get people are hungry for that human element. You know, they want to pick up, for example, like a book. You know, I, I feel like a book is such an intimate object. Like, and and, and my books in particular, I think mm-hmm. people kind of like that. It's obvious that I did everything. Like, I mean, when you pick up one of my books, it's like you know, it's my handwriting, it's, it's my illustrations, it's my words. So I feel like 
I feel like sometimes my books do for other people what my favorite books do for me is is that I feel like I'm actually kind of sitting down with another human being and 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 getting access to to you know what they thought at this particular point in time. It's very much like a human visit, and so I think like um, this is like it sort of reminds me of like what happens at like the peak. You know, when digital music is at its peak, like vinyl came back, you know, it's like that Mm -hmm. kind of return. I think it's David Sachs wrote a book called The Return of the Analog, you know. So I feel like whenever something peaks, like it's it's opposite peaks too, you know. And, And you can see that in politics, you know, as things, you know, you take a progressive turn and then there's a more like regressive thing that happens and it's just kind of the push and pull of that stuff but I do think that like overall um, that I still think that people just want to connect with other people and as these companies like Twitter and Facebook keep manipulating us and keep trying to take like the human out of it I think that people will retreat back to those more human spaces, you know, like the personal mm-hmm. website, email, newsletter, stuff like that. But that's, that's just sort of what, what, I've, what I've experienced. Well, I mean, you're right. Just the fact that you and I can have this conversation for a, an hour <laughs> uh, and people, thousands of people are going to download it and listen to it, you know, that's pretty anti-algorithm. Well, I think that, you know, that's interesting that you, you said that because I think podcasts are, are extremely personal human things, too. I mean, I was talking to my wife uh, the other night and she was saying, you know, when I kind of go through stressful times, I have these podcasts and when the voices come on, it's it's very Pavlovian, you know, it's very like... Like it puts me in that intimate space immediately when I hear this like friendly voice that I'm used mm. to. Right. Yeah, it's a different it's a different mood for, for different podcasters too, right? Like there you know when you're gonna put on this one podcast, it's gonna trigger you to feel uh relaxed and maybe this other one's gonna make you feel alert or happy. Is is that kind of what she was saying? Well, I think that she was just I think what she was saying is it's almost like hearing from an old friend. Yeah. You know, I, I, it was, I, I saw, I really wish I could remember his name. I, I'm not going to remember it, but if you um, type in like pop up magazine voicemail, um, you might find it. But there was a, a guy who got on stage during one of the pop up magazine events and he told this beautiful story about a voicemail had, his mother had left him before she had died and how he had kept it on his phone for so mm. long. And when he was, you know, feeling, um, you know, it was was lonely for her when he wanted to visit her. He would he would call up the voicemail message, and I, and he and the piece they wrote was sort of about how like millennials uh, are are sort of averse to uh, phone calls, um, but how thrilled he was to have this voicemail from his mom. That I think was actually very mundane. You know, she she was just. Like saying, "Hey, it's mom," and blah blah mm-hmm. blah. And call me back. Call me back. Yeah, but um, I think that po- I, I I think it's kind of interesting that 
you know, millennials supposedly hate phone calls, but they love podcasts. <laughs> mm-hmm. I wonder what that's about. Well, in a, in a way, uh, at least the way I like to do my podcast, it's 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 a more focused conversation than I typically would have in real life. So maybe it's a little bit of the, I mean, we're always, we're always trying to get more. Uh, right. And so it's kind of a way of, for me, listening to or talking to people who I think are interesting but that I wouldn't have otherwise gotten the opportunity. And if I did get the opportunity, it wouldn't have been as valuable of an experience. I'm sure that yeah. that can cut both ways. Sure. Um, but I, I don't think there will ever be anything more human than two human beings talking to each other. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's, that's why I, I love the conversation podcast, the interviews. Uh, I'm not into the, the narrative stuff, but huh. I suppose that's even, those are even more valuable. They're almost... It's almost saccharine to me that like, oh, okay, you, you're 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 opening up with this story. You're pulling me into here. You're you're gonna do this. There's gonna be the music right here. You know, it's kind of. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. I mean, it's like it's and too those, good, <laughs> and and it feels mechanical. You know, you're like, okay, I can skip to 15 minutes in, and I'll miss the monologue, and I can hear the you know discussion or something like that. Um, yeah, I just uh, you know, there's nothing like capturing. You know, just two humans talking. I mean, I love the Studs Turkle archive. Hmm. Um, I love to kind of dive into that because he talked to so many just amazing 20th century people. You know, it's like you can dive in and be like, oh, here he is talking to James Baldwin or like, uh, uh, um, you know, Bob Dylan or something, you know, just anybody. This is a podcast or? Oh, uh, well, Studs Terkel was the great, you know, he was a great Chicago radio guy. And there's an archive online of all of his conversations. And, yeah. you know, Studs Terkel later on went to, um, he was a, sort of one of the, like, really great oral historians. His his best book, in my opinion, is, is called Working. Um, and I think the subtitle is something like, what do people do all day and how they feel about, uh, you know, how do they feel about it? And uh, it's interesting because that book was actually, if there are any parents listening or people who remember this book, there's a book by Richard Scarry uh, that's a kid's book. It's called, What Do People Do All Day? And um, Studs Terkel's editor actually read that book and said there should be a book like that for adults. And so mm. Studs' deal was he would go around and interview, you know, people on the street with his with his audio recorder and then he would transcribe it and put it into these books. But he was also a radio guy and there's a great archive online that I would recommend all your listeners check out because it's a really amazing kind of twentieth, mid twentieth century time capsule. Sort of sixties, seventies, really great stuff. Oh, great. Well, that will be in our show notes. Thanks to our Patreon spon- <laughs> our Patreon backers. Um, as you were saying, there's an, a good opportunity to to reach niches or niches or whatever the term is. Um, but at the same time, the, it, it feels like there's these behemoths that are winning the attention uh, of everybody. And, and for us creators we we often want that attention so it seems as if the the challenge is keeping that desire for wider attention from distracting you from being able to uh to speak to that niche 
Yeah, I yes. I mean, I think like everyone needs to know it could be hard sometimes, too, because, you know, I didn't really know who I was speaking to when I first started out. Like, I mm. didn't really necessarily have an audience in mind. Um, like an audience is sort of formed around my work now, but I never really set out like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to reach this particular demographic and this little tiny section of the creative class or, you know, something silly like that. Like, I just never really, I sort of had this romantic notion of the internet that like, if I just stuck to what I was genuinely interested in, then people who were genuinely interested in those things would find me somehow. Um, and I, you know, when I first started out, you know, it was like the mid aughts, <laughs> you know, like 2005. And, and it, it did feel a little bit more back then, like you could sort of start from scratch and kind of join oh, yeah. in quicker, you know? Um, uh, but I, I think that every artist or creative person, you know, along the lines has had to figure out you know, there's a Balzac quote that opens up, um, show your work. And, you know, he says the the problem is always, how does one get noticed? I mean, that's just like the problem. And he was writing in the, you know, <laughs> he's writing in the 1800s. So like, um, it's it's always been the challenge of the artist in the time as to how to put your work forth and get it in front of eyeballs. But you know, and there's a lot of artists that didn't figure it out and it didn't happen until later. And that kind of gets to the heart of this new book, Keep Going, which is, you know, you really have to do it because you're intrinsically motivated to do it. I mean, most creative work, you just have to really love it and you have mm -hmm. to want to do it no matter what. And I'm not talking about like designing websites for like a company. I mean, that's, that's, that's great, valuable creative work, but you know, I'm talking about like something like that doesn't have a guaranteed market return. Well, like 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 your own work that uh, that you could do these newspaper blackout illustrations and and have it be a, a thing. You know, it's funny. I was his interview will come out, I think, after yours. But in my mind, there's a lot of continuity here. I was just speaking with Seth Godin. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And, and we were talking we were trying to navigate or I was trying to have him help me navigate this this idea of what what do you do when you do some work and you don't know what it is and you don't know who it's for. <laughs> and then eventually you've got to decide, I think, if you want it to be successful, who is it for? And or at least, you know, that's what Seth Godin's talking about in his his new book, This Is Marketing. Yeah. Who is, you know, who is it for? But, you know, some sometimes you, you have no idea when you're first creating it. How do you navigate that? I don't know. What did Seth say? <laughs> or was that the whole episode? <laughs> whatever, whatever he said. Yeah, that was it. It was just uh sixty minutes of silence after that. Oh yeah. I well, I don't know. I mean, cause I think some of the greats of all time have made stuff that like there wasn't an audience for it yet. You know, they were making it for the future for, you know, I, I it's very tricky these days because we all want eyeballs. But, you know, I, I mean, 
you know, Van Gogh, he didn't get any eyeballs, you know, or he didn't get any sales anyway. Um, but I, you know, and, and so much of, you know, so much of Da Vinci's great work wasn't really for an audience, you know, I mean, and it's, you could argue, you know, there's an interesting part in the Walter Isaacson bio of him where he's saying like, you know, had Da Vinci, you know, chosen to, uh, publish his notebooks, you know, it would have put science forward something like a couple hundred years. Right. You know there were I mean? things. Yes, there were. I actually have that that highlighted. This is something yeah. about one of his uh, his anatomy um, sketchbook. Yeah. So I I don't know. I mean, I just my feeling was always like what was most important was not necessarily to figure out who the audience was for the stuff, but it was to find a container where you could put the stuff and a place where people who might be looking for it could find it. Huh. You know, that was always my goal with my blog. I just thought, you know, when I signed up for my, you know, austincleon.com <laughs> domain, I just felt like, this is going to be the place where people find me and and I can put whatever I want here. Um, I just have to be findable and I don't know who's going to show up. Um, but, you know, I'm going to I'm going to go for it. I, I do think that when you think about audience, when you're actually creating the work, um, I think the most powerful thing is to not think in terms of demographics, but to think about uh, people. To, to think about one person. Like, mm -hmm. I think a lot of amazing creative work has been done just for one person. And the feeling is that if you make a sort of gift for one person, there is a kind of universal strain in all of us that, that you know, the personal is universal, you know? So, and, and an example of that is like a writer like Stephen King talking about how like, well, he writes every book for his wife. You know, he's thinking about her reading it while he's writing it. And she's his first hmm. reader, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, some of the, uh, some of the greatest children's books were started off as stories for specific young children that then, you know, uh, were published and became, you know, best-selling wonderful books. I mean, like, uh, the Hobbit, for example, Tolkien, like those were stories that Tolkien would tell to his kids, you know, or Winnie the Pooh was for an actual Christopher Robin. Mm. Um, Pippi Longstockings was uh, a name that, that a girl invented. <laughs> you know, that, then, that's a good point. I, I, one of the things Seth was saying that, was that if you made a toy that three-year-olds really love, you can pretty much guarantee that you're not three years old. Um, so, but, but I just, I, I, I forgot about this, these examples that you had in, in, in the book about, um, that some of the greatest children's stories were written for one specific child. So yeah. I guess one of the things I was struggling with was with that I'm often making things for, for, for myself for like, what, what am I struggling with that I can put out into the world, um, uh, to help myself, to help reinforce in myself the things that I would like to to learn and instill in myself. But I suppose if you just switch that to thinking about a particular person, and if it's your own child, 
I suppose you can you can find that that compassion that's required uh, to, to, well, to make that happen. Yeah. And I would like to say that to make things for yourself is a perfectly valid reason to make stuff. I mean, I think that's the fundamental. I think in some ways, particularly for writing, I mean, I think that is the impetus for a lot of work is that, you know, as a writer, everything I do is fed by my reading habit. You know, I mean, like, mm. I, I concern myself in many ways to be a reader first and a writer second, because basically how it goes is it's like, I read and I read and I read and I, you know, I kind of ask myself, like, I have a book that I want to read and I look for it. And if I look and I look and I look for it and I can't find it, then that's usually a clue that I need to write it, Mm -hmm. you know, or somebody else needs to write it. Um, But because, you know, you can usually tell like when something doesn't exist, you're like, someone should do that, but it's not me because like that's not my particular skill set or something like that. Um, And in fact, I always think those ideas are easier to come up with. You know, someone should do this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) But uh, it's not going to be me, but someone should do it, you know. But I I think that, for example, this new book was, um, it's very interesting because all my other books have sort of been uh, because someone else like someone else instigated them. So like my first book of poetry, Newspaper Blackout, that was like, because an editor came to me and said, have you thought about doing a book? You know, um, Steal Like an Artist was a book that I was asked to give this talk to students. So I wrote this talk that then became that book. You know, um, Show Your Work was a book that was attempting to answer all the questions I got asked on the book tour for Steal Like an Artist. <laughs> and then I would get emails about like, how do you get noticed? How do you get your stuff out there? Like, how have you done this? Um, and Keep Going was the first book that I really wrote because I was just like, I need this book. Like, I need to read this book. Like, I'm having a really rough time. I'm not only like sort of like aghast at the world and, you know, distracted and despondent about the state of affairs. I'm also struggling with that sort of midlife career moment where it's like, can I do this forever? Mm -hmm. You know, can I do, you know, and so those two, those two tensions, you you know, those two things together were really the thing that was like, I need a book for this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, there were a million books that I read that helped, but Keep Going was really the book that I wished existed for me in that moment. And so, you know, I think making work for yourself, you know, uh, your idea of yourself is actually another person than you are (laughs) in a lot of ways, you know, because we all have these ideas about ourselves and who knows if that's actually what we are. (laughs) So in some ways, you could think of yourself as, uh, as you know, when you make something for you, it's like, a disembodied experience, but I think I think there are multiple valuable ways, uh, you know, reasons for work to exist. But I think making things for yourself is is a totally healthy, mm-hmm. reasonable thing for creative work. But I think if if you're, um, I think it's really if you're stuck, and if you're 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 not sure what to make 
then you can kind of look outside of yourself and say, what do you, what do I think needs to exist? Like, mm-hmm. where are the holes? Where are the pockets I can fill with my own efforts? Well, I, the efforts that you help yourself. I was just thinking about this today. I was thinking of it as in terms of expert versus angel. And that like, I've written a book before that was about something that was a native skill of mine. I, I was, I was an expert at it. And I couldn't really remember what it was like to not know the things that I was writing. Right. But then I think of other stuff as, oh, I, I'm playing the angel role. And that is, I've been through this. I just finished going through this. In fact, in the process of writing this book, and, and here it is, I'm, I'm, I'm here to guide you from, from here to there. Well, you know, C.S. Lewis said that, you know, the fellow schoolboy can help the other schoolboy better than the teacher can mm-hmm. because he just, he or she, just, you know, just finished figuring it out. Like yeah, exactly like, what you said. I just learned it. I used to think the same thing that you did. And I, then this happened. And now I think this. And so, yeah, you can make that happen. Well, that's a, I mean, that's a very specific position. And it's something that I try really hard in my work to take on the role of a fellow student. Um, mm-hmm. I do not consider myself an expert in anything. Um, and I, certainly don't consider myself a guru. Um, and I don't even really consider myself a teacher. If, if I'm a teacher, it's that I'm sharing these things that I've learned along the way. And so I, I do think that, you know, I don't want to get into pedagogical, you know, <laughs> deliberations, but, you know, I, I, I do think that, that students learn best when they're self-directed. And I think they often learn best from, uh, you know, from peers. And they also learn best from knowledge that they seek out themselves. So I always try to go at it as I'm just a fellow student. You know, I just learned this thing here. You can look over my shoulder. You can take a look at my notes. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if, you know, when I get older, I'll feel more comfortable in that teaching role. Um, but I also, you know, I, my background is, I, is uh, you know, when I first got out of college, I was a reference desk uh, librarian uh, for a couple of years. And I think that librarians and teachers are fundamentally different in that, uh, or traditionally, like a classroom teacher has like a, has a um, classroom teacher has a syllabus and lesson plans, and they're trying to impart this very particular thing uh, to students. They're trying to get students to learn this particular thing a lot of the times, at least in our, you know, in the average uh, classroom setting. And a librarian, on the other hand, is there as a resource to kind of like help the student along with whatever they're working on. And so I always feel like in some ways, I like to think of myself as a librarian more as someone who is just providing, you know, a kind of resource for for people's own, I, I mm-hmm. don't know, their their own explorations. That that might be a little lofty, but but that's that's sort of how I that's sort of how I think about it. I just always think of myself as a as a fellow student because I'm I, I'm learning all the time too. And I, I don't think that good art 
or good creative work really comes from people who think they've got it all figured out. You know, maybe craftsmanship. You know, like maybe if you make chairs or something, uh, or or you you know you you make one kind of chair and it has to be the same way every time. Like I, I suppose like expertise and craftsmanship gets you there, but I think in a lot of creative work. You know, you always have that beginner. You you, you reach for that uh, beginner's mind. You know, mm. every every time, uh, particularly with writers. You know, I've heard writers say over and over and over again, the actual work doesn't get any easier. It's just that you remember what it's like, and you don't give up so easily. <laughs> you know, mm. like you remember how hard it is, and you're like, oh, like I don't actually think that writing gets easier. I think it's always kind of awful. But I think as you get older and you've done more books and you've written more, you realize like, oh, I'm at this point right now. I remember what this feels like. Yes. I just have to show up again tomorrow and and keep working. You yes. know, where uh, you, you get more like, you you internalize those feelings of frustration and you you learn to like recognize it. And and you can feel like when you're at your desk, you can kind of sense like, okay, this is good. I need to keep writing because this is coming hot and heavy and like, I know what this feels like. And then there are other times where it's like, I should just go for a walk in the park because I know what this feeling's like, mm-hmm. you know? So I feel like it doesn't actually, I mean, every book is hard in its own way, but like, I feel like you just know yourself better and you know the process better so you can get through it. Yeah, it's like here's here's the part where I would have thrown up my hands and and quit, but yeah. I know this feeling and now I have some idea of different things I can do when I feel this feeling and I yeah, know that uh if I sit sit in this chair every day, um one day magically <laughs> this li- this liquid gold will come out of my fingers. Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, parenting's sort of like that in that, you know, you, 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 liquid gold never happens. But, you know, when you, when you're a parent, you, if you've had more than one kid, you could sort of remember like, oh, I know what this feels like. This will pass. You know, like I know, you know, I just got to make it to the end of the day and like I can get through this. You know, you just kind of, uh, but that's, that's that's experience, right? That's what life experience is for. Yeah. One of the observations that stuck out to me from Keep Going is you never really arrive. And given that uh, you wrote this book for yourself in some way, did you expect to arrive? Um, and what did the realization that you never really arrive look like? Ooh, that's a great question. Like, I don't know what I expected. I mean, I it's funny, people laugh, but like, I had really low expectations for myself when I started out. I think it's just because I had, I actually had really good professors who were just like, look, kids, like, no one makes any money at writing. Like, no, like, but like, if like, statistically, barely any of you will ever make a living from writing. So like you got to be in it for like the right reasons and you probably need to have a day job, you know, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So I just like when I started out, I was just like, I just really didn't have many expectations. I think what happened for me 
is I realized by the time I got to meet my heroes because of who I was, I realized that like they were just people. I guess what I, I'm a very extroverted person and I am an only child. And I feel like, you know, I, I feel like my whole life I've just been looking for other cool people who, who like art. And writing, you know, that's just like always. Wait, wait. So, what what was it like the first time you met one of your your heroes? Oh, um, what were the circumstances? I mean, I I've gotten really lucky in that, like, most of my heroes have been like super pleasant in real life and kind of illuminating. And some of them I didn't know were going to be my heroes until I met them. Um, but an example would be. Let me think about this. Who would who would an example be? Uh, I remember like when I met Linda Berry for the first time, she's a cartoonist and a author. And I met her, uh, through this guy named Dan Sean, uh, who's a great fiction writer and another kind of hero of mine that I met early on, like in my early twenties. And, you know, they, I just realized like, they're just, they're just really gifted and talented people who are still, uh, you know, I, I realized that like I had something to offer them too, you know? <laughs> I mean, what, what did you think? What did you think before you met them? I thought that, you know, I, I, I think in the back of my mind, I thought that there was some club that, you know, you got to some point and the door opened and they like knighted you and said, okay, you're in the club now. <laughs> you know, like, I, like I, I don't know what I thought. You know, I just thought that like there was some secret society and like you'd know when you were in it. I'm thinking of the Saturday Night Live five timers club with the, uh, <laughs> yeah, you put right. on the robe and. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I thought it was some kind of skull and bones thing, but really, um, and I try to tell young people this now too, is like John Waters has a great section in role models where he talks about when you get older, you have to have youth spies. So you have to have like art spies who are younger than you that can like go out into the culture and bring back like, you know, reconnaissance stuff, like bring bring reports back from the front you know, and I, I try to tell young people this, like, I'm like, look, you could not believe how valuable you could be to these people you admire. If you could just figure out a way to share what you're interested in, in a clear, kind of straightforward, interesting way. Like, I, and I'll give you a perfect example, like, um, you know, if I get an email from a teenager, uh, specifically like a student, like a lot of times it's, you know, sometimes I get really, you know, I get beautiful emails from readers all the time and I am so grateful for them anytime they come in. But I also get a lot of emails that are like, oh, you know, I'm doing this class project and I need to ask you some questions. And, yeah, you know, it's they're like, making me do this. Uh, yeah, I need you to do my homework for me. Basically. I had to buy your book for the class. Uh, yeah, and and then like, but the other day, this girl wrote to me, and she said, "I read your, I had written this blog post about a Walker Percy book called Lost in the Cosmos," 
And and it's it's a send-up of self-help books, but Percy talks about this idea he has called re-entry, which is when you sort of like it's the problem of of making art and experiencing art, which is when you have a transcendent experience and you sort of leave your everyday life, there's always a return to it. There's always like a there's always like a come down from it. And he calls that problems of reentry. And there's a big section of the book that's about it. And so I had written about this on my blog. And this girl had written to me and said, I was reading Frankenstein and I came across this quote that made me think of that blog post. And it's the beginning of chapter nine in Frankenstein where uh, Mary Shelley's writing about you know, after the emotions are heightened and all this stuff happens, there's nothing worse than like like the inaction afterward. Like she was basically describing re-entry. And I thought, this is like, this is so rare and good because here's this young person who immediately, who has, you know, had read, first of all, I'd read my blog, which I'm always amazed by <laughs> that any person under a certain age would even read the blog. And then, and then, and then she's like making this great connection uh, mm-hmm. with this other book that she's reading. And I wrote back to her and I was like, thank you so much. And like, tell your teacher to give you an A. Because <laughs> you're the first, you're like one of the, this is so rare. Like I, I, you know, usually students ask me to do their homework and you're doing homework for me. You know, I, I was so like, I was so like, um, I don't know. I was so floored by that. But then I remembered when I was younger, sending a few of those emails, just being like, oh, I read this thing on your blog and it made me think of this. And a couple of people being like, oh yeah, that that that's a good, you know, just trying to be helpful a little bit mm-hmm. to these people that I really looked up to. And um, I think young people... Uh, don't realize how valuable they can be to the people that they look up to in a way because they have what those people don't have, which is usually they have time and time is on their side. And the, and the idea that they're from a different, they have a different perspective that they're, you know, their youth is its own perspective. Fresh eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Long story short, you know, I think young artists have more to offer the world. It's just, it might not be your own stuff yet. And that's always been a key thing in my career is that, you know, it's not always my stuff that I'm trying to share with people. You know, it's like, I, I'm, I might just share with you this great book I read and I might do that for two years in like my newsletter, like for two years, I'll send you like great books that I've read. And then in two years, I have, hey, you know, a good book I read is this book that I wrote. <laughs> you know, it's like a good, it's a good trick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you have the newsletter and you, you tell them about books and you develop this relationship with them. And then when it comes time to tell them about your book, they're more receptive to it. Yeah. Like there's a, people get to trust my taste. You know, when I'm like recommending links and books and movies and music and stuff. And then like when I have my own thing, they might like they they might give it a look more than if I was just, you know, some some guy. And actually, the the person who does that the best is a guy named Ryan Holiday, 
who who um sure he's been on the show yeah so like ryan is really brilliant in that his newsletter is only once a month and it's only stuff he's read and if you like watch you know ryan he's he's a he's a really brilliant at it because he just shares what he's reading and then he has every once in a while has a link to his own stuff and it works really well and you read every email (laughs) it's funny when when you um follow the things that you're curious about uh at first it can kind of seem like you're scatterbrained or something but over time it starts to look like you have these amazing abilities of planning and foresight (laughs) Um, because things just kind of fit together if you're honest with yourself well we're connection machines you know i mean that's what we do we find connections between things and make meaning and Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. We're like wired to do that. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that that's interesting. I I have noticed that about Ryan's newsletter. It is once a, a month, and I've recently, you know, taken cues from people like him and yourself that oh yeah, I should have some sort of re- regular thing, and uh, I've got one coming out. And and but uh, but then I'm like, well, can I only email on this day that I promised? <laughs> like, what should I do when when I have like a you know, some other promotion going on. Do you only email on on uh, your set schedule or do you ever email outside of that? I think that frequency and consistency is the most important thing in emails in particular. So like, I think that like, if you're going to do an email newsletter, it should come out, people should know exactly when it comes out and they should know pretty much what's going to be in it, like format wise. Like Mm -hmm. they know they're going to get book recommendations or they know they're going to get a list of 10 things or they know they're going to get like a long essay about something. You know, it's just like, so it's frequency and consistency. Like I think those two things, that's like the most important, you know, other than the actual content. But like as far as a repeatable thing that that's the most important to me but that's also actually the most important my in my own creative practice like i and this might be a leap but like i sit down with my diary every day and i write three to five pages and it's like this very important thing and i i do it every day and i do this much of it and it doesn't really matter what it is but like i fill three at least three pages which is kind of a it's a takeoff of Julia Cameron's morning pages, but it's also yeah, just a, it's also just like a good old fashioned diary. Well, but you don't, you don't, uh, you don't rip up the pages, right? So isn't no, that part of no, the morning no. pages? Yeah. No, I, I mean, it's a diary. It's, it's for, it's just an old fashioned diary <laughs> and slash sketchbook slash scrapbook. But like, um, when I, when I'm really cooking creatively, like it, it, that's the kind of, I think, I feel like frequency and consistency is sort of like, I, I mean, I don't know that that's, cause those are kind of product oriented things, but that, that, that simple act of like, I know every day that I'm going to sit down with this thing and I'm for a certain amount of time, I'm going to make something happen, you know, just mm-hmm. that consistency, it really breeds good stuff. Yeah, it does. I've enjoyed talking to you so much. I've enjoyed getting to know your work uh, even better. Um, I'm I'm amazed at what a great writer you are, uh, given that I think of your work as very illustrative. Um, And I would really recommend everybody get 
keep going. But before we go, do you have any uh, sort of final message for people who are out there who are trying to find a way to keep going? They're hoping that they're going to arrive and, and, and maybe need to realize that they will never arrive. Any final <laughs> message for them and, and places where they can get more of you? Um, I think everyone right now just needs to steal some time for themselves. Like, I think, um, I think one of the simplest things you could do for yourself is in the morning, like, just don't reach for your phone. Like, just do anything else. Oh, yeah. Like, just don't reach for your phone. Do anything else. Spend time with your family, work out, read, uh, eat breakfast, anything other than looking at your phone. Cause I just think that's the most, those moments you don't get back. And if you can go straight into your creative work in the morning, if you're a morning person, you could do that. Even if, you, and and same at night, you know, if you can steal an hour before you go to bed, just, just without that, th- those are just my worst days, you know, when it starts with the phone and it ends with the phone. <laughs> I just, I just think like that simple act, um, you can kind of re- reconnect, you know, kind of reconnect with yourself and your kind of, inner life and your creativity and all that stuff. But yeah, try not to end or start the day with the phone. And the and as far as, you know, if anybody wants to come hang out with me or uh, see more of my work, that's real easy. Just go to my website, austincleon.com. And there's probably more than there even needs to be there. <laughs> Great. Austin, thank you so much. Uh, it was, the pleasure was mine. Is Love Your Work helping you find your unique creative voice? Does it bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to become the creator and human you want to be? If so, please be a part of making this a special and nourishing and thoughtful show. Support the show on Patreon. You'll be an even bigger part of this show than you already are. If you contribute just a coffee a month, you'll be helping support the hosting and production of Love Your Work. Everyone has some unique creative gift to offer the world. Together, we can give people the tools they need to bring that work into the world. The world will be better off for it. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash This is a different kind of model for supporting the work that you love. The choice is yours. Vote with your dollars. Put your money where your mind is and keep love your work going. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash As a thank you, you'll get early access, bonus content, and a discount on Love Your Work merchandise. Learn more at patreon.com slash cativy. That's patreon.com slash K-A, D as in David, A, V as in Victor, Y. And if you can't support the show financially and you've listened to at least three episodes, can you do me a favor? Write a review on Apple Podcasts. You can consider it your donation to help support the show. Love Your Work is brought to you in part by our Patreon supporters, such as mini-sponsors Roxana Maynard of Agility Alchemist, at agilityalchemist.com and Paula Spriggs, and top supporters such as Jeffrey Mason and Vitas Pinkovichis. This has been Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavy. The theme music for this show is At Sea by Dorena from the album About Everything and More by arrangement with Deep Elm Records at deepelm.com. Love Your Work is a production of Cadavy, Inc. <laughs>